Well, today, as we continue uh, in our uh, Love, Sex, and God series, uh, we have arrived at a very important topic, uh, one that has been talked about probably more than almost any other topic in our culture over the last few years, and one that has been talked about probably more than any other topic in the church over the last few years, and that is the topic of homosexuality. Uh, Last week, we talked about premarital sex. Today, we talk about uh, homosexuality. I've simply entitled the message, What About Homosexuality? I recognize as we go into a message like this uh, that there are probably a variety of people here today. Uh, There are people here today who are same-sex attracted, and even though you have that attraction, you affirm that the the Bible forbids homosexual practice, and so you're trying to honor God uh, by being abstinent. I recognize that there are probably people here today who are same-sex attracted, and you do not believe that the Bible or God uh, have anything negative to say about homosexuality. You think the Bible and God are are perfectly fine with homosexual practice. And then I recognize that there are probably Christian heterosexual people here today who believe that homosexuality is perfectly fine with God. And then there are people who are heterosexual Christians who uh, believe that the Bible and God forbid homosexual practice. And then I recognize that there are probably a bunch of you who just don't know for sure what to believe. You, you used to believe, because virtually everyone did, every Christian did, that the Bible was against homosexual practice. But you've heard so many people who are Christian, maybe even people who used to believe just like you, uh, saying something different than what they used to say, and that's left you just not entirely certain what you should be thinking uh, about this. Our culture right now seems to be speaking with rather remarkable unity on the topic, topic of homosexuality. You know, just 11 years ago, I think it is fair to say that most Americans had a fairly unfavorable view of homosexuality. Now, America uh, is known for being a place with kind of a live and let live attitude toward life. So most of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, have long affirmed that whether we think what someone does is right or not, people have the right uh, to live how they choose to live. But homosexuality just 11 years ago was viewed much differently than it is uh, now. This was evidenced in part by the various states around the country that codified into law Uh, that marriage was only for a man and a woman, making it uh, impossible for people of the same gender uh, to get married. Ohio was one of those states, and the citizens of Ohio voted by a large majority to restrict marriage as being between a man and a woman. Fast forward 11 short years to our present day, And to be against gay marriage now in our culture causes a person uh, to really be viewed as a relic uh, of a bygone era, a hateful, bigoted era. And so the culture has moved from one that was generally tolerant of homosexual practice, even though vast majorities thought it wrong, to one that almost universally celebrates homosexuality. It goes beyond our purposes today to evaluate how this happened, 
But I think most of us, whatever side of this issue you happen to be on, most of us can agree that change has happened uh, with amazing uh, speed. And, And so the culture is enthusiastically approving of homosexuality. So much so that if you are less than enthusiastic about things like gay marriage, the owner of Starbucks says that he does not want your business. And I'm not usually one to participate in boycotts. I think eventually it's just going to be like kind of pointless because there's going to be so many places you'd have to boycott. What are you really going to do? Uh, But when someone's as forward as he is, I think it might not be a bad idea just to oblige them. I mean, who really needs to pay $5 for coffee anyway? Uh, uh, Macy's says you are for uh, hate, not love. I was in Macy's a few years ago, and I saw this really cool T-shirt on a rack. It said, love, not hate. And I thought, wow, that looks like a cool T-shirt. I might want to buy that. And I walked over, and I realized I was the hater, according to the, to the T-shirt. It was, a, it was a campaign against people who believe like me, right in the, right in the middle of uh, Macy's. And so Macy says, you're for hate, not love. And the examples of those, uh, how those who still acknowledge that people have the right to live how they want, but can't quite bring themselves to celebrate homosexuality, the examples of how those people are now castigated and marginalized could go on and on and on. And I don't see it getting any better. And so the culture is voicing its approval. And many professing Christians are straining their voices very loudly, uh, sharing their approval. Entire mainline denominations have changed the positions that they have held for their entire existence and now say that they believe homosexuality is not a sin. Uh, A large evangelical church in Nashville uh, just about a year or so ago uh, became one of the first, maybe the first, evangelical church to formally change its position and say that homosexuality is acceptable for Christians, acceptable uh, to God, not a sin at all, but that God has made people straight or gay, and so homosexuality is to be embraced and celebrated. One of our Uh, previous regional overseers of our area of the vineyard has now changed his mind on this topic. And he now pastors a non-vineyard church that is affirming and has a married lesbian as the assistant pastor. Uh, Public Christians are changing their mind on this topic with great frequency, uh, often in response to a child coming out as gay. And so the culture... And many Christians are now united in saying that homosexuality is not a sin, is not viewed as such by the Bible or by God. And so today what I want to do is simply look at the relevant passages of Scripture and see if we can find out with any certainty what the Bible's view, what God's view really is regarding homosexuality. Now, there are a lot of places we're going to go today. We're not going to put the words on the screen. They're on your outline, so if you want to turn ahead of when I get there and be ready, you can. Some of these verses I'm simply going to reference. Some I'll actually take the time to read. Uh, If you need a Bible, they're on either side of the sound booth, uh, and you can help 
uh, yourself. But the first place we begin to understand God's view of human sexuality is a place that we have frequented very often uh, in this series, Love, Sex, and God. It is Genesis 1 and 2. Now, I'm not going to take time to turn there today with apologies to those of you who haven't been with us during this series, but for those of you who have been, or if you're familiar with those uh, chapters, you know that Genesis 1 and 2 have made it very clear that God's intended context for sexual expression is within a committed covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. That God intended men for women and women for men is extremely clear in the creation account. That God intended sexual union to be in the context of procreation, at least having the potential uh, for procreation, is very clear in the creation account as well. And so in Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible introduces us to God's plan for human sexuality, and that plan is one man and one woman in a committed covenantal uh, relationship. Uh, This has led one uh, scholar to write that if God intended Genesis to lead us to the conclusion that one man and one woman committed to each other in marriage is the right context for sex, then Genesis has done a great job of communicating that. He goes on and says, if God intended to communicate some other pairing of people as the right context for sex, then Genesis did a very poor job and would need to have been written very differently than what it was. And so we see from the start that God intends men and women for each other. This is the first thing the Bible teaches that has bearing on homosexuality. And then once we leave Genesis 1 and 2, we only have to move forward to Genesis 19 to find homosexuality addressed. In Genesis 19, two strangers meet Lot, Abraham's nephew, at the gate of the city of Sodom. And Lot convinces the men who are actually angels to stay at his house. After feeding them, but before they are uh, getting ready to retire for the night, Lot's house is surrounded by the men of Sodom, both young and old men, who proceed to demand that Lot bring his guest outside so that the men can have sex with them. If you're familiar with the story, you know that the wickedness of Sodom and its sister city, Gomorrah, was so great that God ultimately destroyed these cities. Of course, homosexuality was so prevalent uh, in these cities that the word sodomy was derived from this city of Sodom. And this has led scholars and Christians throughout church history to conclude that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah stand as clear examples of how God feels about homosexuality. And yet those who embrace homosexuality as acceptable to God try now to say that homosexuality had nothing to do with God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they cite Ezekiel 16.49 as evidence. Ezekiel 16.49 indicates that the guilt of Sodom was that its inhabitants were prideful, had excess food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. That's what Ezekiel says. This is part of why God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
But what these folks fail to do is read one sentence further into Ezekiel 16. If they would, here's what they would find. They were haughty and they did an abomination before me. And the word abomination is the Hebrew word, and I, I, I can't really say this very well. I'm gonna, it's T-O-E-B-A-A. I, I'm pronouncing it Toabah. And, and is the same word used in Leviticus 18 and 20, where a man lying with a man as with a woman is called an abomination, a Toabah. And so it appears that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for a variety of reasons. But among those reasons, according to Ezekiel, is an abomination, which refers to homosexual sex. In addition to the creation account outlining God's intended context for sex, and in addition to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, providing evidence for what God thinks about homosexuality, we then find two verses in the book of Leviticus that speak directly to the topic of homosexuality. The first is Leviticus 18.22, which is set within a chapter of the Bible that is totally devoted to unlawful sexual relations. And here's what it says. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is an abomination. Some of your translations will say that is detestable. And the second verse that speaks directly to homosexuality is Leviticus 20, 13, which says, if a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Again, some will say done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. And one of the things that I want you to note about those two verses is that the only consideration in those verses for what makes this wrong is the gender of the people involved. There is no consideration in the text for whether the sex is consensual or forced. And that's key because some have argued that only forced homosexual activity is condemned by the Bible. There is also no consideration in the text for the age of the participants. And that's also important because some have claimed that the only homosexual sex condemned in the Bible is that between powerful older men and younger men who were not advantaged and these older men would take advantage of them. But that's not true. The only consideration in the text itself is the gender of the people involved. You say, okay, I get it. Leviticus says homosexuality is wrong, but Leviticus says a lot of things are wrong. Leviticus says not to charge interest on a loan. Leviticus says don't wear two kinds of fabric at the same time. Leviticus says don't eat shellfish. Leviticus says a lot of stuff. You're just going to be inconsistent if you say homosexuality is wrong, but you still eat shellfish. And this is an argument that you hear over and over and over again. And I don't truly have time to, to address this as fully as, as it would be good to, but basically what we have to understand is that the Old Testament law had a couple of different types of laws within it. It had, first of all, ceremonial laws. Laws that had to do with a sacrificial system and ceremonial cleanness. 
And then the Old Testament law also had within it moral laws. And basically, the the ceremonial laws, the cleanness laws uh, that had to do with the sacrificial system were fulfilled in Christ. And so when Christ came and died on the cross, those were fulfilled, and we are no longer bound by them. But the moral laws that are contained within the Old Testament law are for all time, and we are still bound by them. Two kinds of fabric falls under ceremonial law. Sexual activity falls under moral law. Uh, A very helpful article that I would commend to you, uh, we have them at the welcome table that you could pick up after service, is this article, Making Sense of Scripture's, quote, inconsistency, unquote. It is by a pastor named Tim Keller uh, from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. This article does an excellent job, an excellent job, Uh, of explaining how we discern what laws from the Old Testament are still relevant today and which laws are not. It's only three pages long, uh, but it packs a lot of stuff in those three pages, and I would commend it uh, to you for your uh, reading. So someone says, Brian, Leviticus also says that people who commit this kind of sin, as well as many other sins, are to be killed. So are, are you saying that that's what you want for people uh, who are involved in, in sin? And the answer is no, uh, absolutely not. That's not what we are saying. In the Old Testament, the people of God were a nation state. They, they had civil laws that also had penalties attached to them for breaking them. Today, the, the people of God are not a nation state. We are a collection of churches living among many different kind of governments. The church is not a civil government with those kind of enforcement mechanisms. Sins are dealt with today in the church by exhortation, appealing to someone to turn away from sin and turn back to God. And in the worst of cases, sins are dealt with within the body of Christ by excommunication. And this again is explained very well in this short but power-packed article. So if you would pick that up uh, after the service, if we run out of them, we'll uh, make more copies for next week. I think it would be very helpful, very instructive uh, for you. So the creation account reveals God's intended context for sex. Sodom and Gomorrah demonstrates that homosexuality is displeasing to God. Leviticus states very plainly that homosexual sex is an abomination. And then the New Testament adds its voice to the conversation. 1 Timothy 8, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, and those practicing homosexuality. Now, if you're reading along in a 1984 version of the Bible, what you will read is those who practice a perversion, or in some instances, it might just say perverts. But every respected translation currently uh, currently places some reference to homosexuality in this spot. And then it goes on for slave traders and liars and perjurers. And for whatever else is contrary, listen to this, to sound doctrine 
that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which is entrusted to me. And so we're not treating any of these in depth, but just a couple of things that I want to point out here. First of all, notice that homosexuality is listed among the unholy, sinful things done by lawbreakers and rebels. And notice that Paul says it is contrary to sound doctrine and does not conform to the glorious gospel. And so here's what we have to conclude, friends. Churches today who are embracing homosexuality are only able to do so as they reject sound doctrine and as they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Homosexuality is listed here as a wicked thing. But notice all the other things listed as wicked. Homosexuality is not uniquely wicked. There's a whole list of things, many of which a lot of us are guilty of, that are listed as wicked. Homosexuality is not uniquely wicked, and that's one of the things that the Christian church has often been guilty of acting like, but it is still listed in the Bible as among the things that are wicked. And what you need to notice from 1 Corinthians is that according to Paul, it is unthinkable that Christians would continue to be any of the things on this list. He says that's who you were. That's who you used to be. But now you've been washed. Now you've been sanctified. Now you've been justified. All of the things that he lists are part of an unwashed, unsanctified, unjustified life. And that includes homosexuality. Now what I think we need to acknowledge is that it does not mean, this verse does not mean that Christians cannot struggle with any of the things on that list. Christians can still struggle with those. Sometimes Christians will, will do some of the things on that list. But what it does mean is that Christians cannot be any of the things on that list. In other words, none of those things can become a way of life for the Christian. It is unthinkable. It is only the unwashed, unsanctified, unjustified that can do those things as a way of life. And so we've seen what 1 Timothy teaches, what 1 Corinthians teaches, and then Romans 1 makes the Bible's position on homosexuality, God's position on homosexuality, very clear. And because I have kind of a lengthy message today, you know, since since we've gone to one-hour services, or at least that being our target, messages have gotten shorter. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, but but uh, the message length today is what used to be normal. So even though it feels long, I've decided to plow forward. 
And uh, so, so I was tempted not to read, this is the point I was getting to, I was tempted not to read so much of Romans 1, but I think I need to. Because I'm not going to go in-depth with the explanation of it, but in part because I don't need to. If, if we just read this, we're going to see very clearly what the Bible, what Romans communicates on this topic. So I'm reading verses 18 through 32, and you're welcome to follow along if you would like. Uh, I'll be happy to, uh, to read it accurately if you don't follow along. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood by what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Look, I don't have to go into some in-depth exegesis of that chapter for us to acknowledge that it is quite clear about what it says. There is simply no way to make that chapter say something other than what it plainly says. Now, I haven't gone very deep with any of these passages, and so I want to commend this book to you. What does the Bible really say about homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung? This isn't a scholarly book by any means, but it, it does go into more depth than we have today, uh, explaining these passages and handling some of the objections people make to these passages. And so if you're at all interested, and, and I think you should be interested in, in learning more on this topic, let me commend that book. You can write it down. What does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? You can probably find it at Lifeway. You can get it at christianbookdistributors.com. Probably find it on Amazon. Uh, it's a great book. You should take a few minutes. And it doesn't take long, by the way. You should take a little bit of time uh, to read it. There's one more significant passage in the New Testament regarding homosexuality. Those who are advocating for change in the church often make the claim that Jesus never said anything about the topic. 
And it is true that he never specifically mentions homosexuality, but he actually did uh, say something that is very relevant to the discussion. In Matthew 19, Jesus affirmed Genesis' presentation of the proper context for sex being one man and one woman in a committed covenantal relationship. In Matthew 19, 4, Jesus said, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. So Jesus himself personally affirmed what we see in Genesis that the context for sex is the marriage of a man and a woman. There is a lot of biblical evidence for what the Bible thinks on this topic. I almost feel like I've been piling on here today. Just go one place after another after another to show what the Bible says. And everything that we have considered here today makes it very clear that the Bible takes a very negative view of homosexuality. In fact, even some people who are advocating for the church to change its position on this issue concede that where the Bible talks about homosexuality, it is universally negative. And then they go on and explain why that doesn't really matter anyway. But they will at least concede the Bible is universally negative when it speaks of homosexuality. The truth, friends, is that the Bible is very clear on this topic. Homosexuality is sinful, and it cannot be accepted as unsinful by Christians. Let me be more specific. Homosexual sex is sinful and cannot be accepted by Christians. I think we need to acknowledge that same-sex attraction is not sinful any more than being attracted to any type of sinful sex is not in and of itself sinful. That's a temptation. That is not sinful. But to act on the temptation is when it becomes sinful. So The attraction isn't sinful, but that attraction must be resisted. It cannot be given into because same-sex sex is sin. And this is what Christians must affirm if we are going to be consistent with what the Bible teaches. I had planned to take some time today to answer some of the common critiques or objections that those who are advocating for change make toward these scriptures and other objections that they offer. But I really didn't have time to do those uh, justice today. So I just want to commend that book that I just just uh, showed you because it answers in the book some of these common objections. Things like the Bible hardly ever mentions homosexuality. Of course, we've kind of debunked that one here today already. Um, things like, yes, the Bible speaks about homosexuality, but not committed monogamous homosexuality. Uh, the, the book addresses that objection. Uh, Here's an objection that's pretty common. What about gluttony and divorce? The church tolerates gluttony and divorce. Why can't it tolerate homosexuality? The book answers that. Uh, Here's one. It's not fair to people with same-sex attraction not to be able to act on that attraction. The book talks about that. And then a whole host of objections that basically come down to saying that upholding what the Bible says 
is unloving and ungracious. And so the book does a great job of answering uh, all of those. And so it'd be well worth your time uh, to read. With our remaining time, I just want to do a couple of things. Um, I almost want to cut this one out just for the sake of time, but I, I think I'm going, to, I'm going to share this. I want to address a common phrase that is often used by Christians in response to different sins and, and has been used in the context of this topic of homosexuality. The phrase is, love the sinner, hate the sin, or sometimes it's hate the sin, uh, love the sinner. Use of this phrase in our current cultural climate as it relates to homosexuality, is going to get you mocked and get you derided as hating not just the sin, but the sinner. The rationale is that because gay people see their sexuality as fundamental to their identity, what they do, they say, cannot be separated from who they are. And so they say that if you hate the sin of homosexuality, then you hate them. And so this has led many well-meaning, but I believe misguided Christians to say that this phrase should be placed in the trash and never used again. Now let me acknowledge where I think these folks are right. I think this phrase is completely unhelpful if you are speaking to someone who is same-sex attracted and does not believe what the Bible says about homosexuality. That phrase is not going to help you. It's not going to be productive to your conversation. But that being said, it is a phrase that we should not discard because the phrase perfectly summarizes for Christians how we should respond to all kinds of sins and people involved in those sins. The first thing is, friends, church, we must be people who continue to hate sin. Christians must hate sin because we know how destructive it is to the people who are involved in it. We cannot make peace with sin. We cannot view sin as no big deal. We can't view sin as some benign thing because it isn't. It's too destructive. And here's the reality. Too many Christians who even for themselves believe the right thing have decided that sin is not that big a deal. We don't need to be that worked up about it. But the reality is, friends, no matter how many Christians think sin is not a big deal, it actually is a big deal to God. And so we must always hate sin. But in our hatred of sin, we must always love the sinner. We, we can never allow our righteous hatred of sin to morph into hatred toward the person involved in sin. And so even though it's out of favor, this phrase is actually a very, very great description and a reminder of how we need to relate to people involved in sin. We must always love them and our actions must always be motivated by love for them. If you cannot be motivated by love, then don't say or do anything regarding another person's sin. But if you are motivated by love, do and say what God leads you to. What God leads you to. If it's not received, as long as you did and said what God led you to do, that's all you can do. 
and you can leave it there. Sometimes I love my children in ways that they don't recognize as love. (laughs) Sometimes we have to love each other as brothers and sisters in ways that in the moment, the person receiving the love may not recognize as love. And just because somebody doesn't recognize that you truly are loving them, if you've been obedient to God, you've acted in love, that's the best you can do. So wisdom tells us it's better not to use this phrase when we're actually connecting in conversation with someone involved in this type of sin or other types of sins, but it is helpful still in reminding us how we should think and how we should act. So what are we to do? If we believe what the Bible really says on this topic, we are out of step with our culture. We are now also out of step with much of the so-called church. And so what are we to do? So, so I have just a few quick thoughts, and then we'll wrap up. First thing is we need to pray. You need to make a point of praying for your same-sex attracted friends. Pray that God would break down the walls that the enemy has built around their hearts and minds, and that they would come to see the truth. Pray for Christian leaders that they would hold fast to sound doctrine and to the gospel. Pray for yourself and your family that each of you would hold fast to sound doctrine and to the gospel. The pressure to change is pretty intense today, and it's going to get greater as time goes on. So so pray for the ability to stand, to hold fast. Pray for wisdom, to know when to speak and not to speak, what to do and what not to do when you are face-to-face with your gay friend or family member and pray for the ability to love like Jesus. And that's the second thing. In addition to praying, love. Don't allow your appropriate rejection of homosexuality as acceptable to cause you to be unloving toward people who are same-sex attracted. Don't view such people as anything other than this. People that Jesus Christ loves so much that he died for them. That's who they are. Be willing to be friends with someone who is gay. Don't reject anyone because they're a sinner. Jesus didn't. Speak the truth in love. This is the next thing. Speak the truth in love when given the opportunity. That's an important part. Speak honestly and truthfully to your gay friend when given the opportunity. Tell the truth to your straight Christian friend who is rethinking homosexuality and whether the Bible is really against it or not when given the opportunity. Be prepared, be ready to speak, but do so when given the opportunity. Don't force it. Allow the opportunity to come. Here's the next thing. Be compassionate and gracious without compromising. Look, everybody needs Jesus. Every single one of us here today need compassion and grace. And let me give you a few ways that you can be compassionate and gracious toward people that are involved in all kinds of sin that that you cannot agree with and and that you may even find just very off-putting. You can be compassionate toward people who are involved in sin by seeing them correctly as people who are in bondage, 
as people who have been lied to and have believed the lie, as people who are trapped by the enemy of their souls. You can have compassion when you see people in that light. And you can be gracious this way as well by remembering how much you have been forgiven of. And here's a great way to be compassionate and gracious toward people involved in sin by remembering how often your own life still does not measure up to what you say you believe. How inconsistent even the most mature of Christians often are in having our actions match our proclamations. Failing way too often to live up to the standards that we believe God has set for us. That's how you can be compassionate toward other people involved in sin. Compassion and grace are godly things, but they are godly until a false version of them causes us to compromise what cannot be compromised. So be compassionate and gracious, but don't compromise. Here's an important one. Remember that we can't do what only God can do. We cannot change another person's heart or mind on this topic by the sheer force of our desire to do so. We can't change their minds by our tightly reasoned arguments, by our impressive knowledge of the scriptures. All these are good things and we should be equipped with these things, but they are all insufficient to change a person's heart and mind. That is work that only the Holy Spirit himself can accomplish. Our role is to simply bear witness to the truth, to be faithful to teach and preach what the Bible says, but we cannot change anyone. So don't put that pressure on yourself and don't accept the frustration that comes with trying to change someone. Trust the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And finally, but I'm going to squeeze about four things in this last point. Remember what VCC's commitments are to people who are same-sex attracted. If you are here today and you are same-sex attracted or you're here today and you love someone, a friend, a family member who is same-sex attracted, remember that these are our commitments to folks. Our first commitment to same-sex attracted people is that we love you. We really do love you. The media will tell you that we don't, but we actually do. Now, if you think that people can only love you if they agree with you about everything, then we might have a difficult time convincing you that we love you. But if you can accept that people can love each other even though they may not always agree, then I think you'll see if you hang around with us for a while that we really do love you. And as I've said before, I hope that we can love one another if we don't agree or else my wife and I are in bad (laughs) shape. There's like no love there if you have to agree to love. I mean, like it's... Actually, we agree a lot more than we used to, but she's seen the light. Seen the light. All right. 
All right, let's come back. Let's come back. Come back. Hold the retort. Hold the retort. All right. Our second commitment to people who are same-sex attracted is that we welcome you here and we desire friendship with you. We want you to attend church here. We want you to feel welcomed here. Our doors are not closed to anyone. Jesus wants a relationship with everyone. And so we want to extend the welcome of God's kingdom to everyone that walks in these doors. And so church family who agrees with me about what the Bible says, here's what you need to be ready for. You need to be ready for the day when somebody doesn't just secretly walk in here, same-sex attracted, but walks in with a partner. We're not meeting people at the door and checking their sexual status before we let them in. You, you need to decide right now that you're going to be able to be gracious and loving and allow God to do his work when a man and a man sit in our midst and hold hands. A woman and a woman sit in our midst and hold hands. Nobody's going to like pull them aside and say, hey, you know, we, we, we need to talk to you. So you need to make peace with that. that that's part of what it means to, to open up the doors and say, we welcome all in the name of Jesus. We'll trust that the Holy Spirit's going to work on folks as time goes, but, 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 but don't think we're going to take it on ourselves to fix things in the first, you know, two weeks they're here. Don't expect that. We really do want a relationship with folks. We want them to be a part of uh, us, to come and, and experience God's love here. Our third commitment to same-sex attracted folks is that we're a church that is committed to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This means that we will not condemn anyone, but that we do believe apart from faith in Christ, all of us are already condemned. We believe that through Christ's sinless life, sacrificial death, and resurrection, we all can be forgiven of sins, reconciled to God, and receive eternal life. And we believe that we receive these benefits through faith in Christ, which includes repentance, turning away from sin, and turning toward God. And this leads to our fourth commitment. We are here to support one another in living in obedience to God. We believe that the gospel does not include only forgiveness of sins, but it also includes freedom from sin. That once we turn to Christ in faith, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live in obedience to God. Now, none of us will live in perfect obedience to God, but we are committed to helping each other live in increasing obedience to God. And so these are our commitments to people who are same-sex attracted. What we cannot do, however, is deny what we believe is clear in Scripture. And we realize that there are many voices out there saying the Bible does not stand against homosexual sex. But we find those voices and their arguments to be completely unpersuasive. And the Scriptures we've looked at today give us good reason to feel that way. Finally, and this isn't going to be a neat and tidy ending, but uh, finally, I just want to give a quick word to you parents. As a whole, our children's generation, at alarming rates, are being led away from biblical truth on this topic. You have a responsibility, parents, 
to teach your children what is right and true on all matters of faith, on all matters of Scripture, including, and in our current cultural moment, especially on this topic. And you really need to do that. The enemy of your children's souls is fighting for their minds on this topic. And so you better be engaged and you better be at work helping to form their thinking in a Godward direction. Are you doing that? If you're not, you better get busy. You better see every, every moment. You're watching TV, you see something, it's a teaching moment. You don't have to be shocked that you see things, but you do need to use those things to explain to your children as conversation openers. You need to be engaged on this topic. Well, I've covered a lot here today. I felt like we needed to do this. Uh, I commend the book. I commend that article. I hope that you'll uh, get both. Take some time to read those. Why don't you stand?